because of the challenges of travel and the challenges of finance, numbers will remain, you know, kind of challenged, certainly for this year, maybe for, for a little time to come. But, you know, symbolically, as Laura said, it's, it's absolutely vital and important that we, we plant a flag in the ground and, you know, do that as a staging point to move forward, I think. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined this week once again by our deputy editor, Rebecca Polly, and our chief analyst, Sean Robbins. This is the first of two special Cine Europe editions proudly presented by our partners at Cineonic. Cineonic's future-ready enhanced services and technology solutions provide compelling cinema experiences, peace of mind, and financial flexibility. Today, with more than 95,000 projectors installed globally, cinemas around the world trust laser projection by Cineonic to power the next generation of moviegoing. Visit Cineonic at this year's Cine Europe and discover why theaters look to Cineonic to provide the solutions of tomorrow today. And with that, guys, let's jump right into this because we've got a lot to cover here and we will be joined later in this episode by the leadership of Unique. We have a Unique CEO, Laura Hulgat abbott and the president of Unique, Phil Clapp. But before we get into that, uh, let's look at this box office recap. Rebecca, Sean, there's a couple of big headlines here. Let's start with Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, Rebecca. This is the fourth consecutive weekend where that film stays at the top spot. The big headline uh, this week, of course, is that Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is now the highest grossing film of the pandemic era. It passed competition Black Widow last Friday uh, with its 13 million weekend gross uh, from just under 4,000 locations. It now has a domestic total of 196.2 million. Uh, that brings its global total to uh, 363.1 million. Guys, in its fourth week, it only had a 39% drop, which is uh, really still a pretty modest drop, pretty solid hold, considering uh, that the films at this point has been out for a month and out only in theaters for a month. In second place, we have another theatrically exclusive release, Universal's Dear Evan Hansen, opening to 7.4 million from about 3,300 locations. Uh, guys, this one didn't uh, didn't do so well, Sean. I, I think, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that 7.4 falls largely in line with your expectations. You know, this, this film debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival, and I think it's, it's safe to say it had some pretty negative feedback. Daniel, I, I know you you saw and really enjoyed the film. Yeah, I can get into, I think, my reactions to it. And I think uh, maybe my confusion as to some of the reaction around this title. But let's talk numbers first. Sean, uh, what are your big takeaways from the number one and number two in the market this past weekend? Well, I think with Shang-Chi, it, it really is just kind of a continuation of what we've known for the past month. I mean, this is another Marvel movie that's it's a crowd pleaser. It's the type of event that I think really the industry and moviegoers have waited for. Now, it's also a very different film from Dear Evan Hansen, which we saw an example of a musical underperforming earlier this summer in In the Heights. 
and it's always been a genre that's very hit or miss. I mean, that's that's really the the simplest way to put it. To me, I think this performance really underscores a, a few things. Number one, we even before the pandemic, we had seen a very quick turnaround in, in the appeal of of certain young adult films uh, that catered toward a certain audience. And I think in this movie's particular case, even though it had a a very you know diehard fan base to some extent of the stage play. This was a very dramatic film and maybe not the kind of escapism that a lot of people, even young adults who are going back to theaters right now, are really in the mood to see at the moment. So it's I think it might be less of a commentary on the quality of the film, even though we know reviews weren't exactly stellar, but less a commentary on that and more so a reflection of the audience mood right now. I think that's a great point. This isn't a happy-go-lucky musical. Uh, This is a musical really about grief and about processing grief, which in itself I think is very hard to do. It's not really what we associate with a, with a fun Broadway musical, especially on the big screen, right? It could be read as a very cynical musical about a young generation that's maybe a little bit too active on social media with unintended consequences, whose characters maybe aren't completely likable and are morally ambiguous. Now, I'm always interested in seeing things with a slightly different ambition, but as you know, Sean, I can totally understand if that really doesn't line up to what folks on a general audience sense want to see. And I think the reviews uh, definitely underscored that. It's it's a far f- cry from uh, something like The Greatest Showman, where you have the lead character certainly <laughs> right. go through his uh, dark night of the soul, but everything kind of comes out well in these big, glorious dance sequences. So Yeah, if we look at the demographics, Rebecca, it's actually a little bit interesting here. 62% of that audience is female, um, as opposed to 38%, which is male, which is a great number as, as we get to see this split, but then we look at it in context of that 7.4 million opening weekend. It reminds me of what you've say, you've been saying, Sean, for quite some time now, that that female adult audience is the one that's taking a little bit longer to return. How much of a factor do you think that played into this opening weekend performance? And do you think that's a factor that a title like West Side Story has to worry about come December? What that means for West Side Story that's a big question uh, because that's you know almost three months away, two and a half months, I would say at this point. It's a Spielberg film, so it's going to have that going forward and it can attract potentially a lot of that that older audience. The question is, is that going to be a big enough movie to bring out some of those people that haven't gone back to theaters yet? If And maybe, you know, that might not even be a topic by the time Christmas hits. I think a lot yeah. can happen. I mean, seeing that 71% of the people who saw Dear Evan Hansen on its opening weekend were under the age of 34. Um, definitely concerning, I think, uh, over the next couple of weeks for those films that will mainly seek to attract that kind of older female audience. But uh, yeah, I, I, I got to agree with you, Sean. I hope and I'm, I'm confident that by the time West Side Story hits, uh, the conversation will be different. Now, let's move on to some overseas numbers here. We spoke about Dune's overseas debut last week. This week, Rebecca, it keeps on having some traction. Could you go over its performance in some of its top markets? Yeah, it actually uh, still continued to screen, adding a few markets, bringing its uh, total of international markets up to 32, uh, where globally it screened on just under 8,000 screens, adding 26.8 million to its global queue. Uh, Its top markets continue to be Russia, earned 15 million in the second weekend. It's really uh, appearing to hit there in the Russian market quite well. 
France, $14 million second weekend coom, again, very good, followed by Germany with $10.2 million, Italy with $5.2 million, and Spain with $4.9 million. Uh, of course, the asterisk with all of those is that when Dune came out in those markets, it came out in a theatrically exclusive way, whereas in the United States, uh, that will not be the case. Uh, Sean, looking at this uh, performance, let's start with Dune overseas. What do you think we can learn from that traction, even though it's theatrically exclusive, as Rebecca mentions, that's not something that the film is going to count on here domestically? Well, I think in Dune's case, probably at this point, we can look at earlier openers that have kind of come out this year, Fast 9, anything action related. Everything I would say that Dune is telling us from its overseas performances is essentially telling us what we would be able to expect from it if it were theatrical only in North America. Of course, that's the wrench in all of this is that it won't be. So, you know, Dune opens to a little bit over 7 million, I think, in a country like France, whereas Fast 9 opened to 9 million. If you just do a straight line comparison, that would tell you in theory, Dune should probably open somewhere around 50 to 60 million in North America. That's not going to be the case necessarily, though, because a lot of people know they'll be able to watch it for free at home. Uh, But I think the positive sign is that it, it is living up to that expectation as an international friendly type of blockbuster film. And even though we aren't going to see those those usual kinds of numbers, and certainly the numbers Warner Brothers wanted to see for this outside of the pandemic, it's probably at this point an encouraging sign for, for getting that second part made. Uh, Sean, you comfortable giving us a number, giving us a ballpark here of what you think Dune might land at in North America? You know, it's it's still fairly early. We haven't even, tickets aren't even on sale yet. So that that could really change things. Our range up until this point has been on the high end, close to that 50 million uh, spot where Godzilla versus Kong was at. On the low end, something more like a 30 million that Blade Runner 2049 opened to about four years ago. Uh, that That is kind of something we have to brace ourselves for, given that this is still a niche property. Uh, you can put a big cast in it, you can put a lot of money behind it, but ultimately, especially in this competitive landscape, that's the question. Will this relatively unknown IP outside of a very very targeted fan base turn out for it as James Bond and Halloween and Venom are probably still dominating a lot of screens come mid-October. Well, speaking yeah. of Venom, guys, I am I am super excited because it is now official that Venom will be my first film that I am seeing at a drive-in movie theater ever Ooh, in my life. Awesome. That's awesome. That's nice. So you're going, you're going opening weekend? I am. I'm going opening weekend. It's it's drive-in. It's it's odd. Um the drive-in that I'm going to up in up in Warwick, New, New York, is one of their double features is Candyman and the Addams Family too, <laughs> which seems a bit. But when that's you have a limited be, that's a cool limited one. number of films, it's official. I'm uh, I'm I'm I have a rental car. I'm doing my very first drive-in, so I'm I'm super. And Venom just seems like a drive-in type of movie to me. That it kind totally of totally does fun. Yeah. Like I want to be I want to be hooting and hollering and yelling and <laughs> reacting to things. So Sean. In terms of forecasting, we're a little bit closer uh, to Venom, obviously, opening this weekend alongside another uh, title skewing maybe male, young adult to adult, The Many Saints of Newark. How do you think this weekend shapes up? Because these look like two titles opening domestically, going for a very similar target audience. Maybe to an extent. I think, obviously, the advantage is in Venom's favor by quite a stretch. 
and to me, we just have to look at the first film for that because on opening weekend, 71% of its audience was 25 or under. That wow. is the wheelhouse of movies right now. Yeah. That's exactly what you want for it to coming out. I right always now. knew so, that I had the spirit of a teenage boy. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how much of that 71% overlaps with the dudes on Twitter that put like as their image icon, like pictures of the Joker. Are Joker guys the same guys as Venom guys? They have a very similar under 25 dude fandom online that is just fervent. I think Joker guys are maybe more like Fight Club guys. Oh, okay. Slightly a little more, a yeah. little less of a sense of humor about it. Definitely a Venn diagram <laughs> there. But in terms of box office, uh, Sean, before we get too much into this rabbit hole, where are you putting Venom uh, for this opening weekend? At this point, and as we're releasing this episode on Thursday, it'll probably be out just a few hours before our final forecast. So check out that article, uh, you know, little tease there. But so we'll have our final numbers there. As of right now, on Tuesday, when we're recording, our range has been about 45 to 65 million. And I'm, I'm increasingly leaning on the higher end of that. I, I think we're going to see some diminished returns from the first movie. Uh, if, if it can hit 80 million, that would be incredible. But we also have to look at the fact that the first movie opened leading into somewhat of a holiday. Indigenous people stay on Monday. So that helped out Sunday box office the first time. That won't be there this time. Uh, the Sunday drop will be bigger. This is a sequel. Probably will be more front-loaded. Previews start at 4 p.m. So that Thursday plus Friday gross will be an even higher share than the first movie, which I think started at 5 p.m. So not a huge difference, but maybe enough to matter. Just a lot of factors like these. I think we'll see a, a more front-loaded run especially with the competition in mind opening in October. But this is the first big movie opening in a month since uh, Shang-Chi. And even though the I think the, t t the ticket sales and the release confirmation really kind of confused a lot of people here in the past week or two, it's really started to tick up. And it, it, social media activity, maybe not quite as strong as the first one, but it, it's just it's really one of the strongest we've seen this year. So I would I would increasingly expect easily over 50 million. Uh, and maybe somewhere in that 60-ish range is very possible. So where does that put something like The Many Saints of Newark? This is a title that is based out of a TV show that was in many senses iconic, but it last came out, when did, when did The Sopranos end? Mid-2000s? Yeah, it does seem like that demographic would certainly skew older than Venom. And I mean, I, I you know, when it comes to seeing something in a theater versus seeing something on my TV screen, I'll... I think that the, the movie theater is preferable. But that said, you know, you're looking at when people watch The Sopranos, they watched it on their TV screens. So for I would imagine for a lot of people, that association is there. It's not good. And yeah. I think maybe the optimistic comparison, which I, I would have applied uh, again before the pandemic. I'm, you know, if we had a dime every time we had to say that. But something like Downton Abbey, which right? was able to come mm, out and beat yeah. expectations of the box Very office. different that, shows, but. <laughs> right. And an older audience that watched it at home. But now, uh, especially with <laughs> the Cry Macho and a few other films kind of hitting that similar target adult male audience, uh, it's tough to say. I, I, I'm not sure. I think we could have looked at this movie as something like Black Mass back in 2015 when it opened to 22 million. I don't think it gets quite to those heights at this point under the circumstances. Do you think it, it could open at 10 million or are we looking at another single digit HBO Max adult leaning title? That's, you know, honestly, it's a coin flip. Uh, I think we haven't seen enough HBO Max titles lately hit that mark in order to confidently say that it can hit 10 million. I, I, I think the fan base is there to make it happen. 
but I think especially with with how Cry Macho did a few weeks ago, that that really just kind of was another data point that showed there is an audience out there just willing to watch these these Warner Brothers movies at home right now. Well, guys, thank you so much for that analysis. Uh, we will be back next week with more insights on the box office. And we will now be moving on to the Cine Europe portion of the episode with our guests, Laura Ulgat Abbott and Phil Clapp. Laura, Phil, thank you so much for joining us uh, here for this uh, edition. Talking about Cine Europe, talking about the European marketplace, it's always really interesting to check in with you guys, uh, really since the beginning of this pandemic, 18, 19 months now of a global crisis for this industry. So starting from that perspective, knowing that we still are very much in the recovery phase, where does European exhibition find itself right now? In a good place, I would think, uh, you know, compared to where we were last year around the same time. Uh, I feel like comparing that, you know, to September 2020, when we all felt that, uh, you know, the second closing down was coming. Uh, you know, we've had all our territories open now, uh, you know, since uh, July. So that's 38 countries where cinemas have been allowed to reopen. Uh, we've had, you know, releases uh, coming out. We've had audiences coming back in big numbers. Um, and, you know, speaking about big titles, uh, Dune being released and, of course, uh, James Bond coming to our screen. So, hey, we're all very, very happy. I'd echo that. I mean, I think the, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk about Cine Europe in a while, but when we gather in Barcelona next week, I think the message we, we want to give is one of, of thanks. I think thanks to, uh, you know, governments that have provided funding to cinemas to allow them to retain staff and, and, and to get to the other side of this period. I think thanks to to colleagues in the industry, be they, you know, exhibitors showing strength and, you know, support to each other, but also colleagues in the studios and distributors, those who showed faith in the industry at a time when uh, maybe others didn't. But more than that, I think I think uh, a message of confidence, a confidence that the recovery is underway. You know, it's not going to be a straight line. There will be some setbacks along the way and, you know, they may differ from territory to territory. But I think, you know, the the direction of travel is now clear. Uh, and it's one which sees, uh, you know, a clear sign that audiences want to come back to cinema. They're confident to come back to cinema and they find cinemas uh, comfortable and safe places to be. And that as the, the weeks and the months roll on, you know, will we get back to what we call normal? I don't know what normal is anymore, but I think certainly we'll be back to many of the things which we loved and some of the things we probably hated about the industry, uh, you know, which is, which is, you know, all to the good, I think. And it's, I think, a, an important thing to note that this is a recovery for any out-of-home entertainment destination, not just for cinemas. So as we're tracking consumer sentiment, I'm looking here, especially at European sporting events. I saw the Anthony Joshua fight at, at Tottenham Stadium not too long ago. Great turnout there. Seeing Champions League matches with crowds, people being out, talking to my European colleagues, uh, just hearing them going out to restaurants, going out on the weekends. These are indicators that we are in a general recovery. One of those details that I'm always interested in speaking uh, to international colleagues is the impact of some decisions made in the United States uh, that, and what those ripple effects could be. We spoke with Moses Babatope from Filmhouse in Nigeria uh, a couple of months back, and we asked him, 
what was uh, what was happening during uh, Nigeria's own recovery, and he told us a story about Coming to America, uh, the comedy sequel. They were very excited. Uh, it had great traction coming in. But after the film went day and date in the United States, they were hit with a massive piracy problem upon the film's theatrical release in Nigeria. So even though they got a lot of support in the distribution side of going out with a film in Nigeria, the impact of that availability in the U.S. really, really created a big collateral damage uh, for their earnings. Now, you mentioned Dune a second ago, Laura, and I have to ask this. We're seeing Dune making great business across top European markets, Russia, France, Italy, Spain, Germany. What does that success of Dune being released in a period when it is theatrically exclusive in select European markets tell us about the ripple effects of theatrical exclusivity? Well, as I mentioned to you just before we press record, I don't like to draw conclusions, but I'm going to draw conclusions on this one, uh, is that theatrical exclusivity, uh, of course, is there to serve not only cinemas, but the whole industry and uh, to the benefit of audiences. You mentioned the impact of decisions made in the US. And, you know, for us, for Europe, we saw that last year. That was a big example when we reopened during the summer, you know, a huge majority of our members were, you know, ready, were welcoming audiences, uh, but we were missing the content. And we knew that we're paying the price somehow for, you know, the pandemic situation in the US. So we all knew how interlinked we all were in the industry and that we're now talking about the global industry. But I think this was really obvious um, last year when we had to go through three or four months uh, without, you know, very, very little content. Um, and I think that this is something that we are, you know, observing, of course, now. We can't ignore that. Uh, as you mentioned, we're very, very lucky with June, of course, because we are getting the full exclusivity on this. And I think that will make a massive difference uh, on the figures of the films in terms of box office. I think one of the things that the last 18 months has been an ample demonstration of is, is the global nature of the industry. You know, we, we myself and Laura and others have spoken from a number of platforms over the last two or three years about, you know, the increasing globalization of the industry, be that through consolidation, be that through the expansion of cinema operators or distributors into other territories. And, and over the last 18 months, particularly for those we represent in Europe, I think a source of frustration, but, you know, I think understood is the fact that many of the decisions on, on the release or the non-release of films or the movement of films have been driven by, you know, the situation on the pandemic in the US or in Asia or in other territories. And even now, you know, and, and I think we probably feel we're coming out of the shadow of the pandemic, you know, decisions have been made in the last few weeks to move major titles into 2022, primarily, it seems, because of the situation in the US. And, and so I think, you know, the point I made about the recovery not being a linear one, there, there will be some missteps, some steps back, essentially. But, you know, I think now there's the confidence that the slate is strong enough that it could withstand those kind of changes in a way it probably couldn't a year ago. It's interesting uh, having this conversation uh, around uh, a cine Europe and understanding that we're having this convention still in the midst of a recovery. Uh, when I was at CinemaCon last month, it was very special, I think, for a lot of folks to meet with colleagues that they'd, uh, that they'd been speaking with, they'd been collaborating with over the phone. For you guys, as you're looking at Cine Europe, what does having this event in person at this juncture of the recovery 
mean for the European exhibition industry? I think it means a lot. I think it means that we are, you know, all ready to have all of this uh, in person. But as you mentioned, it's the first time for a lot of us that we're going to be able to see each other in flesh and bones and not only via a screen, uh, which makes a massive, massive difference in our business. Uh, not only, you know, when we, of course, talk, you know, and have our panels, but just to have those kind of informal conversation that really help uh, our industry to, you know, um, to thrive. And I saw that going to Cannes in July um, to the French convention last week. The dynamic is very different. And you really also project a sign of confidence in the future uh, by having the convention in person, you know, showing that, you know, we have the studios coming, presenting their slate. You have the whole exhibition community, uh, you know, meeting, plus all our partners from the whole industry uh, coming together. I think there's no better sign of, you know, this is the full start of the recovery uh, and the confidence that we can have in the future than having this. I mean, I mean, I, Laura said it essentially. I mean, the one thing I'll say is that, you know, clearly UNIC, UK Cinema Association, uh, you know, working with partners or sometimes without partners. We put on a whole range of events, you know, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic and post-pandemic. And, and I think, you know, we always attempt to make them as engaging and uh, valuable as possible to the people participating. But I don't think any of us are under any illusions that all the real value is from those kind of human interactions that Laura talked about. I'm not suggesting the cinema industry is unique in that regard, but I think there's a particular aspect to the cinema industry which thrives on people sharing experiences, sharing woes and sharing triumphs. And, and you know, and, and while, you know, box office and others have done brilliant work in keeping everyone connected, it's still, you know, kind of not the same as it were. And I, and I think, you know, I think we recognise, and certainly colleagues at NATO and running CinemaCon recognise that because of the challenges of travel and the challenges of finance, numbers will remain, you know, kind of challenged, certainly for this year, maybe for, for a little time to come. But, you know, symbolically, as Laura said, it's it's absolutely vital and important that we, we plant a flag in the ground and, you know, do that as a staging point to move forward, I think. Well, talking about those travel restrictions, I know it's been so difficult for event organizers right now to really move forward with a lot of these things. I was speaking with uh, with Andrew Sunshine uh, from the Film Expo Group uh, earlier this week, uh, and I asked him, you know, you've been in this family organizing events your entire life. Is this the hardest one you guys have ever put on? And he said, without a doubt, this is without a doubt the most difficult event to go forward with. There are so many variables out there. Now, one of the best things of attending these conferences and one of the things that I'm really looking forward to uh, from Cine Europe is learning about some interesting case studies and initiatives from European markets that other exhibitors can learn from. For those folks that can't make it to the event, could you share some interesting case studies and, and initiatives uh, that you've seen from your members? You know, we, we looked at compiling a lot of various audience initiatives, for example, that you can find on our website. And I can't remember how many hundreds there's there, but there is a lot. And we're trying, of course, Cine Europe is for us the occasion to showcase, you know, what our members have been doing, what the industry has been doing. So we're going to talk, as I mentioned, about content, you know, about local content. Um, we're going to have a executive roundtable. We're going to look at the future of the industry. But we're also going to talk about, you mentioned it, audiences. We're going to have a panel looking at what is the, you know, what does the audience expect now? Uh, where we're going to share some, you know, best cases. But, you know, from 
gosh, anything, you know, home delivery of popcorn or whatever, you know, from cinemas partnering with, you know, some online platforms like Mubi uh, and York Cinema in Germany, uh, you know, private cinema screenings in Sweden. I think you just have so many of these out there. It's really, really difficult to to pick, you know, just a few. Um, but hey, teaser, you can go on the Unique website, uh, <laughs> you know, have a look at all our various documents. But also we're going to publish our annual report next week uh, where we've been featuring the best of these. So if people want to learn more about them. I mean, just the one thing to add is, uh, uh, and this probably is something which is slightly unique about the cinema sector, the vast majority of people who are venues or companies that, that UNIC represents, the vast majority of people the UK Cinema Association represents, and actually I think probably the vast majority of cinemas that any trade body represents, that's all they do. They are cinemas. They're not multifunction companies that if the tap is turned off of people coming to watch films in the cinema, they can rely on other revenue streams. So, so that kind of innovation, which Laura talked about, which you've seen in a variety of forms across a variety of territories and from a variety of different types of venues, I think has been driven by a, a recognition, the need to keep your existing audience engaged, you know, and whether that's engagement through allowing them to enjoy their own at-home film experience, but still keeping a little bit of cinema by delivering popcorn to their home, or as Laura said, through partnering with online platforms or, you know, just one example from the UK, the Queen's Film Theatre in Belfast, which is a, a, a small local venue, they launched their own online uh, streaming platform called the QFT Player to great success. And I think they probably will continue with that, although their core business will remain, uh, be, be again rather, uh, the big screen. So, so what we've seen over the last 18 months is a huge amount of innovation. And, you know, particularly for, for, for Laura and colleagues in the UNIC office who spend most of their time uh, trying to dispel the notion within the commission that cinema is somehow a kind of uh, 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 an unimaginative, backward-looking sector lacking in innovation. You know, we've, de- well, we, others have demonstrated our argument absolutely 110% over the last 18 months that nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to the cinema sector. Now, we've uh, spoken a little bit about the uh, ripple effects and impact of U.S. decisions on programming and how that really has been a a big hurdle in content availability for the European aspect of the recovery. Uh, As you not only get ready to open in your home market, but waiting for other markets uh, to to be ready for your own theaters uh, to, to be prepared for that recovery. The role of local content in that context has been massive. Uh, We really can't overstate that enough. I look at a market like Spain that did so well with with a comedy sequel last year to really welcome those audiences back. We've seen that in Russia. We've seen that that in France in the past. We know what local content means for a market like Turkey. For you guys looking at unique markets, in your perspective, what do you think the role of local content will be moving forward in this new normal as European cinemas look at local content, not only as an alternative, but maybe a stronger complement to maybe an unstable market coming from Hollywood? I think it was true before the pandemic that countries that had the best box office and admissions results were also countries which had a very, very strong local slate. Uh, And that will be even truer, I think, post-pandemic. As you mentioned, I mean, it's it's really striking when you look at, you know, the figures. Um, You know, look at Denmark. uh, You know, Druk has done amazing figures 
uh, the Netherlands, crazy country uh, where people just came back so quickly at the cinema and relied not only on Dutch films, but European films. So it's not only about, you know, the films for your very own country, uh, but of course, just diversifying, I think, your content overall. So we need blockbusters. No one denies that. We absolutely need them, uh, you know, to attract certain demographics. Uh, but you also need the whole variety of, you know, content you can have in a cinema. And that's European films, that's, you know, films from Asia, from, you know, all other countries in the world, even cinema. Uh, let's not forget even cinema. And I, and I think the more diversified you are, uh, you know, you're going to, of course, answer all the needs of your audiences and the better you're going to be. And I think that's going to be essential uh, for cinema's recovery. There's a particular UK angle on this because, you know, we we have benefited uh, to a large degree from the fact we share a language with the with the Hollywood studios. Um, and but that's made it much more difficult with audiences to differentiate between what's British film and what's US film. And, you know, that's sometimes not helped by some of the, the tax incentives and the way that, you know, kind of, um, you know, and, and that's all to the good. I'm not complaining about it, but the way studios have been incentivized to to badge films as British. I, I think for there is a live conversation going on in the UK at the moment. The experience of last summer when, you know, for reasons we, we needn't rehearse, many of the studios decided to move films out of that window. Um, it was really challenging finding film content uh, that, that audiences wanted to see. Uh, and, and we looked to a degree kind of jealously at a number of European territories who will be recognised it's in Europe for, for their efforts, who were able to rely on not just rely on a, a strong stable of European, of, of domestic film content, but whose audiences were used to seeing that kind of film. So it, there wasn't a sudden, you know, kind of dogleg where they were used to seeing US studio, US studio, US studio, domestic content. That was part of their content mix. And I think coming out of this in the UK, at least, there's a, there's a discussion about without, you know, at all, as Laura said, without at all detracting from the importance of you know, the major US studios and, and the, the major titles they produce because they drive the major audiences. But how we, we arrive at a more diverse film mix and how, how we encourage audiences to see a more diverse range of films rather than just the ones that have the loudest voice in the market. Thank you so much for joining me again. It's been a, a great time here chatting, talking about industry news to our listeners. We will be back once again on Thursday next week to go over the latest news in the theatrical exhibition business. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with The Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>